Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about something that's a little unique to the show, and that is the quantum of everything. When I think about Einstein's theory of quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance, it makes me think about how things are interrelated to one another, that everything that we do say, think, has a cause and effect. And today we're talking with someone who can probably explain this a lot better than I, and that is theoretical quantum physicist Dr. Amit Goswami, who is a retired full professor from the University of Oregon's Department of Physics, where he served from 1968 to 1997. He is a pioneer of the new paradigm of science called Science Within Consciousness, an idea he explicated in his seminal book, The Self-Aware Universe, where he also solved the quantum measurement problem, elucidating the famous observer effect. He's got a new book out, The Everything Answer Book, How Quantum Science Explains Love, Death, and the Meaning of Life. And I am Super excited to have this conversation with Dr. Amit Goswami. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Glad to meet you here on the radio. Me too. Happy to have you here with us. Let's talk about quantum theory and quantum science and break it down for our listeners who may not be familiar with these ideas. I'd be happy to. Quantum, the word quantum actually means quantity, but it was used in connection with the elementary particle of energy, the lowest denomination of energy that can be exchanged between bodies in the year 1900 by Max Planck. Uh, so the word quantum means a grain of energy, the smallest grain possible of energy. The quantum physics became very intriguing because uh, light is also energy. And the elementary particle concept suggests that light consists of grains, very localized grains, but light was already known 
for a couple of hundred years to be wave. Uh, waves spread everywhere. Waves can be at more than one place at a time. So how can an object be both wave and particle? And later one found that even matter behaves that way. Matter is also, elementary particles of matter are also both wave and particle. So the uh, situation became really, really paradoxical. And then quantum equations were discovered, and the um, equations clearly said that, well, objects are waves. But uh, the interpretation demanded that they are different than ordinary waves. They're not waves in space and time. They're waves in a domain outside of space and time. And this is where that spooky action at a distance come in. Because in that domain, there is spooky action at a distance. Things do not need a signal to communicate. They can communicate at once without exchanging any signal. This instant interconnectedness suggests a oneness of everything in that domain. And that is the mystery of quantum physics, which I eventually solved um, in 1985 in a sudden creative insight. And um, that oneness is consciousness that mystics talk about, spiritual traditions talk about, uh, religions are based on that. So all of a sudden, science and spirituality became integrated in view of this quantum finding, which was actually experimentally verified in 1982 by Alan Aspey and his collaborators in Paris. In your most recent book, The Everything Answer Book, your basic premise is that quantum physics is not only the future of science, but it also is the key to understanding consciousness, including death, God, psychology, and the meaning of life, that quantum physics offers what you say is the theory of everything. That's right. Quantum physics does offer finally a theory of everything. Of course, the details are requiring more mathematics uh, for matter in the case of non-material objects. The mathematics is not developed as of yet, so much future uh, has to be unraveled, of course, but the premise certainly covers everything. Well, you talk about the mathematical equation, you know, and I go back to thinking about Einstein and something that he wrote near the end of his life about that, you know, that, that there are some things in the universe that cannot be explained by a mathematical equation. As a scientist, the desire is to be able to create the roadmap, right, to, to have the mathematical equation. But I also see or understand what you're saying, that at this crossroads of science and religion or science and consciousness, that does there necessarily have to be a mathematical equation? Well, there, there, um, there are domains uh, for which the mathematical equations predict the potentialities, possibilities that can happen. But what possibility will uh, actualize at a given moment, at a given experience, and that cannot be predicted by quantum physics or anything. Therefore, it follows what you just said, that there should be, as Einstein said also, there is a part which cannot be mathematically explained. That is the part where we have creative freedom. That is the part by which creativity enters our life. If life was not that way, if everything was predictable, then there would be no need for consciousness. Yeah, and it'd be boring if it were predictable. <laughs> it would be no, there would be no experience. So therefore, not even boring, it would be beyond boring. It would be nothing. <laughs> there would be only so potentiality true. and there would be no experience as nothing. 
in your private life, you are a practitioner of both spirituality and transformation, and you call yourself a quantum activist. You've made appearances in several films, such as What the Bleep Do We Know and its sequel, Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, you've been included in documentaries such as Dalai Lama Renaissance and the award-winning Quant The Quantum Activist. Talk a little bit how, as a scientist and a professor and an academic, you have crossed successfully over into the realm of embracing um, consciousness, spirituality, and its acceptance back into the scientific world. Well, you know, I came to spirituality in the traditional um, suffering way of suffering. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, yes, I was at a conference and um, the whole day I suffered because I thought I gave a pretty not so good speech and other speakers did better, and everyone was getting more attention, and I was just jealous, jealous, jealous. So this jealousy continued the whole day, and at 1 o'clock in the morning, I found myself all exhausted by my jealousy reactions and uh, taking antacids and still heartburn and all this. So I go outside. The conference was on the Monterey Bay, very beautiful place, and the ocean air hits my face, and I have this absolutely radical thought. Uh, why do I live this way? And the thought came with the conviction that I don't have to. I can be happy. I can do happy physics. And ever since, I just changed my ways. Uh, gradually, there was some opposition initially in the department. You know, they didn't want me to change fields. But I did. And um, when I started becoming successful, then acceptance grew. And eventually, here I am. <laughs> the happy physicist hanging out the, with me. <laughs> the happy physicist, yes. Well, I, I think you said something really important, you know, that, that, that it was born out of the suffering. And for so many of us, it is the, the paradox of suffering, right? That, that it, we can only see that light or that uh, opportunity when we are challenged by something that is difficult. It doesn't seem to exist when we're in the midst of our happy dance. Yes, I mean, the point is that the, we have a great amount of inertia, and that inertia keeps us going, and if life has no challenges, we feel no need to change. That is more or less universal. A few people are born with uh, a curiosity, Actually, I was too in my childhood. I was a very curious child. Um, but eventually, uh, the curiosity bogged down to kind of a ho-hum existence as a successful physicist at the university and minor excitements like publishing a paper, working on a new idea. Those are all minor things that keep you busy. What made me unhappy was, of course, my family life. It was not working. I didn't know how to love my wife. I didn't know how to love my children or pay attention to them. I knew that I'm not doing a very good job. And then these negative emotions that are built into our brain circuit that acted up and eventually brought a crisis in my life that I described to you. So that is the usual way. But as I said, a few lucky people do take the path of just curiosity. And that is, of course, wonderful. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Amit Goswami. In the meantime, we're talking about his newest book, The Everything Answer Book, How Quantum Science Explains Love, Death, and the Meaning of Life. 
To learn more, please visit his website, www.amitgoswami.org. On Twitter, Quantum Activist, and on Facebook, Quantum Activism. We are going to take that break, and when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Dr. Amit Goswami about the book, The Everything Answer Book, a new book that he's working on um, having to do with happiness, and so he'll have to come back and talk to us about that. But I want to get into a deeper conversation about the meaning of involution and evolution and the purpose of life. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Before we take that little break, I want to talk with you about your health and happiness. One of the ways I take good care of myself is by using Ritual Essentials for Women. Ritual has reimagined multivitamins to fill the gap in women's diets. Recently, I changed up and streamlined my vitamin supplement routine using Ritual to get more of what women need, including vitamins D3 and omega-3, all with a fresh minty flavor and no fishy aftertaste. Instead of gobbling a handful of vitamin pills each day, I've reduced it down to two clear and digestible, easy-to-swallow capsules a day. This makes life a little easier, happier, and healthier. Ritual also offers essential prenatal vitamins for women thinking about it, trying, and expecting. The best thing about Ritual is that all ingredients are traceable and transparent. Products are vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free. Ritual products are clear capsules that are 100% out there for the world to see. And here's the cool and convenient part. Ritual is a subscription delivery program that's easy to start and easy to snooze. Ritual delivers a monthly boost to your health and happiness for less than a dollar a day and helps provide all the essential nutrients that your body needs. So whether you're living life or creating a new one, why not add some good-looking science to your daily routine? Visit Ritual.com slash happiness to start your ritual today. Once again, that's Ritual.com slash happiness. We'll be right back after the break. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Just a minute, I want to ask you a super important question about your sleep habits. 
I ask because it's been scientifically proven that getting a good night's sleep will absolutely contribute towards happiness and well-being. So here's my question. Are your bed linens deliciously soft and inviting restorative Zs each night? Recently, I discovered the most comfortable sheets that don't break my bank, made by Brooklinen, the fastest-growing bedding brand in the world. I've been snuggled in Brooklinen sheets for the past few weeks and am now an official fan. Good Housekeeping named Brooklinen winner of the best online bedding category. Brooklinen's mission is to bring insanely good five-star quality sheets direct to you at prices that won't keep you up at night. This means all the comfy thread count and stylish design without the high prices, middlemen, or markup. Brooklinen.com is giving my show listeners an exclusive offer. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code HARVESTING at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so sure you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use the promo code HARVESTING at brooklinen.com. Once again, that's brooklinen.com and the promo code HARVESTING. Go ahead and make your bedroom your sleep sanctuary with brooklinen.com, the best sheets ever. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code HARVESTING. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this most interesting episode. We're talking about the quantum of everything. I don't know how else to describe it. The quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance, theoretical quantum physics. My guest is Dr. Amit Goswami, and we're talking about his latest book, The Everything Answer Book, How Quantum Science Explains Love, Death, and the Meaning of Life. And prior to the break, we were talking about almost how it's in an existential crisis that we can achieve the greatest transformation, right? It's the paradox of change. It doesn't happen when things are going well, smoothly or joyfully. It often happens as a result of the struggle. But for those of us out there who are questioning the meaning and purpose of life, I want to ask Dr. Goswami to talk about how this relates back to the quantum. Yes, this is the most important question to discuss. Why do we have meaning and purpose? We miss meaning and purpose if we only hold on to a material existence. But when we realize that quantum physics is telling us consciousness is the ground of being and possibilities are possibilities of consciousness itself, then we can open our science up to also our internal experiences. Because um, as it's well known, Carl Jung codified it modern times, but even ancient people knew this and we experienced it. So there should not be really any debate that besides sensing of matter, we do have capacities of feeling. We feel vital energies, thinking, we think meaning, and we intuit. We intuit what Plato called archetypes, like love, beauty, justice, truth. These things sort of point us to a higher meaning and usually comes with noble feelings, like love can be felt in the heart, strangely. Uh, These things are all well known, but could not be explained before because we were stuck in a paradigm that matter is everything. 
But with quantum physics, recognizing that everything is possibility for consciousness to choose from, we can open ourselves to non-material aspects of our experience. And this is where quantum science can start contributing to a um, possibility that we can explain some things about the human experience. Not just, we are just not mechanical machines, but we also have the capacity of feeling, thinking, and intuition. And these things, the experience itself, is something that a machine cannot have. Machine can never have a subject-object split experience. So this makes quantum physics very, very special. Quantum science that we have developed on that basis, Everything Answer book is written on that basis. This is a very powerful basis to discuss the human condition, why it suffers, and how to make it happy. Well, it's interesting because the the human condition and the existential angst that we were mentioning is something that many of us feel at different points in our lives, depending upon our experience, depending upon what's happening externally. But what I also hear you saying about your own moment when you were at that conference in Monterey that we were talking about in the last segment, that there came a moment where you just decided to make a switch. So the human mind or the human experience also has the capacity to make a very powerful shift when it comes into consciousness about something like this. Yes. And that is that is the creative urge that um, we are talking about in the break. Sometimes it comes with midlife transition. Uh, that it did for me. You know, I was um, about 37 years old at the time. For some people, it comes even earlier, and for some people, a little bit later. Sometimes even teenagers feel that our job being creative, and they get so upset about their current life where things don't move, there is no meaning and purpose. You know, the suicide rate is very high among teenagers for that reason, because they don't get any hint to the current educational system. And if the parents are not very suitable either for inspiring, then they feel so helpless and hopeless. So meaning and purpose is very important to us. Meaning and purpose is also suggested by when you look at evolution from a consciousness point of view. From a consciousness point of view, um, the ground of being, potentiality, why should it be actualized at all? This is the question religions ask, spiritual traditions have been asking for millennia, but nobody could give a satisfactory answer. As soon as you realize that the ground of being is really potentiality, we immediately find an answer because potentiality got to be actualized in order to have experience of what the potentiality is capable of manifesting. Can it manifest meaning? How much meaning can it manifest? How much of the meaning, higher meaning, can it manifest? How far can we go in terms of meaning? So the purpose becomes immediately very clear. We want more and more meaning, and eventually the meanings get into higher meanings that are denoted by what we call archetypes that comes to us through intuition. So that's a later category, higher category of meaning and feeling that we explore through exploring these archetypes. And the purpose becomes very well defined because, you know, we have been doing meaning processing in the rational way for the past 12,000 years, more or less, give and take. But now is the time to, has come to go into higher meaning, the stuff that we call the processing by the soul, 
You know, everybody uses the word soul. It satisfies my soul when we love somebody. It satisfies my soul when we are generous to somebody. It satisfies our soul when we creatively discover a truth for ourselves that we can live. And that soul-satisfying things are what these intuitions, archetypes, they're about love, beauty, justice, truth, abundance, even power, and, of course, wholeness. Those are the things that we really covet. Those are the things that gives us the highest meaning and highest purpose. What about mercy? Mercy is another one. It's a very good one. Yeah. And, and mercy opens uh, our heart. It, it's an enormously uh, great um, archetype. It's connected with mercy, compassion. These are uh, compatible words. What about involution and evolution? Talk a little okay. bit about the contrast between the two. Right. So the idea is that um, this idea came from Sri Aurobindo, a great sage in India who lived in the last century. So the idea is that consciousness is the ground of being at the highest level does not change, unchanging. This concept is a spiritual concept. It has been around for a very long time. It has more or less been unacceptable things about the true reality, ultimate reality. Ultimate reality should be non-changing, permanent, and something that is that is permanent can only be the reality, the real reality. And then, of course, involution has to happen because that nothing can happen in that permanence. So, therefore, involution is a bit of impermanence is brought in, imperfection is brought in, and so these imperfections are to explore reality with a fixed set of rules, those that's what we call science, and that begins the involution. And then meaning enters, that begins mind, and then uh, finally uh, vital energies uh, and specific biological forms, that's what includes the, uh, whose movement is the vital energies, and those things enter. So those are the stages of involution, and then finally matter is created, the final part of involution, which makes representation of these higher objects. So archetypes, feelings, meanings, these are all represented, and consciousness itself is represented in matter. And this uh, science of representation is what we are unraveling right now. It comes with, first of all, the science of the self that I developed in self universe, and then I wrote subsequent books where I showed how the feelings are represented as the software that governs the hardware of material, the living organs. Uh, this has now been verified. This epigenetic software is now a commonplace acceptance uh, in biology. Rupert Sheldrake also contributed to that. And then meaning is represented in the neocortex. That, of course, we have known, um, and this is where the analogy with uh, artificial intelligence comes from, because we can represent meaning also in a computer, our meaning, but don't get the idea that computer itself can process meaning. It cannot. It can only make representation of the meaning, just as brain can only make representation of the brain. Matter can only make representation. They cannot process these original things themselves. Matter cannot process um, vital movements. Matter cannot process 
by itself. It may can make representation of the vital movement as software that runs the programs of the uh, organs. It can similarly make representation mental memory that we can remember and get by with the software once it is created. But the software has to be produced by a programmer, first of all, which is consciousness. And second of all, there must be blueprints of the software, and that's the mind, and that's the vital. That's what we call the vital body. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about quantum university, because you are a physicist that has come to meddle in health and healing. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'd love to. Well, uh, what happened was that um, this was a long time ago, in about 1999, 1998, uh, Beverly Rubik, a uh, famous biophysicist, wrote me a letter saying that she's working on an ontology and she would like me to contribute on uh, how quantum physics applies to medicine, something like that. And I was very intrigued by the idea, and but really was hesitant. And then I was invited to a conference with Dalai Lama in 1999 in Dharamsala, India. And I went and Dalai Lama challenged all of us, the 30 scientists that assembled, that you are developing a paradigm that's wonderful, but apply the paradigm to social problems. Otherwise, what's the, what's the use? So I took it to heart. And since I had that offer from Beverly, I started working on how to apply quantum physics in medicine. And right at that time, Deepak Chopra has uh, contributed a, a beautiful book called Quantum Healing, in which he puts forth the idea that maybe there are certain healings that take place by quantum leaps. These are um, discontinuous jumps that electrons make from when they transit from one atomic orbit to another without going through intervening space. Of course, I knew about all this. I was an expert on quantum leaping and stuff in a theoretical way. And so that appealed to me. I was also became at that time and later too very, very interested in seeing if quantum healing is a creative process because I had a theory of creativity already built. And I found indeed evidence that, yes, the creative process can be applied and then um, uh, this idea of quantum healing can be made universal instead of these few cases where people sort of spontaneously take the leap, which is called the phenomenon of spontaneous healing. So the this way, I made the concept of quantum healing applicable to all healings, any difficult healing where the healing is being caused by not in the mental meaning that you apply to a feeling. For example, if somebody is in love with somebody else and that somebody else passes away, then there is a tendency for us to grieve. And that grieving blocks the energy at the heart, vital energy. And this is being purely a mental decision, mental decision in the sense of grieving. I should grieve. Without this person, how can I love? This mental decision causes a disruption of the vital energies in the heart. That causes a disruption of the software that runs the organs of the region of the heart. One of these organs is a very important one called the immune system, and the immune system starts malfunctioning. Immune system's job is to defend the body against intruders. 
intruders like ab- abnormal cells that automatically grows in the body because there is no way to prevent accidental mutations and such mutations take place anyway and some of these mutated cells become abnormal because they grow indefinitely. That limit that usual cells have, they don't have that limit. They somehow get rid of that limit. And these cells are killed off by the immune system. But if you don't love, then the immune system will malfunction and that may lead to cancer. So this is the kind of thing that I proposed in that book based on my research. I also showed that the all the traditional uh, medicine, the age-old Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, they can't all be explained with the new science. And therefore, I propose that we should do science in an integrative way, and integrative quantum medicine is what I called it. And I'm happy to announce now that, yes, this has now gone quite far. Many people are working on it. We have a um, quantum university in Hawaii, which teaches such quantum integrative medicine to some extent. And now we are doing even better. In Jaipur, India, I have uh, established now a university where we will take quantum medicine and quantum economics and ideas of quantum physics to change our social systems to a a logical fruition and teach people how to do this in society. And this is what the movement of quantum activism is about. Well, I would love to have you back because we're out of time today. And what you've just shared launches me into 500 questions that we don't have time for me to ask. So will you come back and, and let's talk more? Of course. Ah, fantastic. The book we've been talking about today is the Everything Answer book, How Quantum Science Explains Love, Death, and the Meaning of Life. And the author has been and is my guest today, Dr. Amit Goswami. To learn more, please visit www.amitgoswami.org. At Twitter, you can find him at Quantum Activist. And on Facebook, you can find him at Quantum Activism. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation about the quantum entanglement of everything, where science and consciousness converge. My next guest is Dr. Brian C. Wilson. 
Brian Wilson is a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. Brian earned his BS in medical microbiology from Stanford University. After serving in the Peace Corps in Honduras and the Dominican Republic, he went on to earn an MA in Hispanic Studies from the Monterey Institute of International Studies and an MA and PhD in Religious Studies from UCSB or University of California at Santa Barbara. Brian is also the author of a very cool book entitled John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. And just to give a little backstory, John E. Fetzer believed that the planet could be transformed by loving action. Through the exploration of the connection between science and spirituality, he engaged in his own broad and deep spiritual search, and during his lifetime, funded leading-edge research at Stanford, Duke, and Princeton. His story exemplifies his quest to wake up to the infinite potential. And that's what we're talking about today with Brian Wilson. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, well, this is this is a great pleasure. This is an area that holds a lot of interest for me personally, and I'm hoping and maybe even assuming a little bit for our listeners. Let's talk about John Fetzer's early religious influences and experiences. Well, he was uh, from a very kind of conventional Christian background. He was um, baptized a Methodist and uh when he was a teenager, his mother converted to Seventh-day Adventism, which is uh, an apocalyptic denomination here in the United States. This actually has its origins in Michigan. And so for years, he was a committed Seventh-day Adventist. But then in his late 20s, he found it rather spiritually restrictive. So he left the church, left the Seventh-day Adventists, and turned his attention to metaphysical religions in general. And that in itself is an interesting story. And when we talk about John Fetzer, for those who don't know of him, and I did not know of him until I began reading the book, he was in radio, TV, and cable. He was actually a mogul. Yes. Most people here in the Midwest or in Michigan know about John Fetzer because uh, he started one of the first commercial radio stations in southwest Michigan, WKZO, which is still on the air today. And then what he did is he took that radio station and built it into a kind of broadcasting network, the Fetzer Broadcasting Company. And it included radio and television and music. And later on, he got into cable. He was one of the first people to get into cable. And so he made just a lot of money. He was a multimillionaire by the time he, he died. And the other thing that most people here in Michigan remember him for was that he was the longtime owner of the Detroit Tigers baseball team. Wow. I did not know that. That's a int very, very interesting fact. So he, what you have is uh, a man who is a mogul, a legend, and a quest for spiritual expansion. And what's interesting to me is one does not often think of the Midwest as a, the cradle of spiritual mm -hmm. expansion, but it, in essence, it was. Yes. And one of the interesting things I think about this project was that it allowed me to look at a variety of different metaphysical traditions, uh, everything from spiritualism to theosophy to new thought to all sorts of different things. And John Fetzer was into these things, and he didn't have to go very far because he found practitioners of these various traditions uh, just either within Kalamazoo or within driving distance. 
And the interesting thing is, when he left Seventh-day Adventism, one of the first things he did, and this is way back in 1933, Fetzer lived from 1901 to 1991, but back in 33, he went down to Indiana, and there is a spiritualist camp called Camp Chesterfield. And it began in the 19th century and still continues to this day. And it's there that John Fetzer first encountered spiritualist mediums and this whole idea that you could contact the dead. But he also basically came into contact with all sorts of psychics and psychic healers and people who did divination and all these various things. And this was right here in the Midwest. It's had a long, long history here. And so that's one of the fascinating things. I was born and raised in California, so I always thought that California was the birthplace of all these alternative religions. And it was fun coming to the Midwest 20-some-odd years ago to find out, no, these traditions, a lot of them, had a, a presence in the Midwest or had their roots in the Midwest long before they came to California. What's interesting to me in what you just shared is that I think we often think, yes, that California is the headquarters of New Age. But really, we're talking about a mainstream in Michigan, right? In, in the Midwest, where it was accepted as part of the culture, although not really maybe spoken about? That's correct. I would, I would say it's more of a kind of metaphysical underground. The Midwest, of course, tends traditionally to be very Christian, and that's the dominant tradition, of course, even to this day, except in certain parts. But there was always this undercurrent of metaphysical traditions and people who were interested in these things. So there was a very healthy kind of underground. And John Fetzer himself is a good example of this because he was into all this stuff, uh, and yet he was very careful to keep it, for the most part, private, especially in southwest Michigan, which tends to be very conservative religiously. And part of this was a business decision because he was afraid that if people knew he was exploring metaphysical traditions, he'd lose audience members or advertisers. So it was only very late in life when he was in his 70s and 80s that he kind of came out of the metaphysical closet and was public about his spiritual beliefs. Interesting. And he modeled that blending business and spirituality is a potent combination. Talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. He was very good at compartmentalizing his business from his spiritual side. So he never tried to impose his spiritual ideas uh, on his businesses. And yet, he believed that his spiritual outlook was partly responsible for his business success. Now, a lot of his business success, of course, was due to the fact that he worked very hard and he made some really good decisions. But he always felt that he had some kind of psychic power that allowed him his intuition to make these good decisions and to surround himself with good people. And so he always thought of that as a kind of uh, extrasensory perception. And in private, he would also use divination tools occasionally to make business decisions. And things like the Ouija board, or most famously, he carried around a pendulum. And the pendulum he simply used when he was in a quandary about what should I decide here? He would take out the pendulum, which was just a weight on the end of a string, and ask a series of yes-no questions. And based on how it deflected, that would help him make up his mind, make a decision. Wow. And pendulums, for those of you who, who are listening who might not know, you you can make a pendulum pretty much out of anything, right? It's That's right. Anything with a, you know, a, a string, a wire, anything, and, and a weight. So it's just like a plumb bob. 
And the idea here is, and, and John Fetzer believed implicitly in this, is that the mind has power over matter. So he really believed that his mind could actually, to some degree, uh, control the actions of the pendulum. When we talk about the blending of spirituality and business or commerce, it reminds me of a story, a little one that I just experienced yesterday. I was in a car with a Lyft driver and I had a young man who was 24 years old from the country of Benin, a very small country mm -hmm. in West Africa. And we started talking about spirituality and business. And he was very well educated and he was coming to this country to get a degree in finance. And he said, do you believe, he was asking me, that spirituality should be blended with business or compartmentalized? Mm -hmm. and, and we were talking about the sort of the pieces of the puzzle. And I think this is what John Fetzer did in his life. He saw mm -hmm. that this was just one aspect that was part of the greater whole. Yes, yes. I mean, he didn't discount the fact that in business, there's a lot of kind of just hard-headed decisions you have to make. But he never discounted as well the fact that there were other spiritual forces at work. And so he was very comfortable blending this kind of very kind of pragmatic, practical side of himself with this more spiritual side. And when we talk about the spiritual side, you know, we're talking about spiritual empowerment, talking about paranormal insights, energy medicine. There's mm -hmm. a variety of things going on under this this header. Yes. And John Fetzer was was essentially into them all. He was fascinated with the idea of kind of spiritual energies. And I think this goes back to his early radio days, because uh, when he was a young kid, he had a brother-in-law who helped him build a little crystal set. And this was – a crystal set, of course, is a, just a very primitive radio. And this is back in 1910, 1911, just when radio was coming on the scene. And they found it just magical that they could tune in this little crystal set and get voices and music and other things just right out of the air. And so Fetzer always thought about the energies involved in this and speculated that they formed a continuum between physical energies or energies we can measure and more subtle or spiritual energies. And so one of his, his quests was always to come up with ways of perhaps measuring these subtle energies and using them for various means in the world, especially spiritual healing. Fascinating. And talk about your interest in writing a book about John Fetzer. How did you become connected and what inspired you? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of American religious history in a comparative religion department. And my specific interests are in new religious movements. And the reason for that is because I'm fascinated by the ways people build their own spiritual traditions or religious traditions or how they construct their worldviews. And so my, my previous book was on a man named Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And most people know Kellogg as, as the inventor of breakfast cereals, which he was. But he was also a Seventh-day Adventist as well here in Michigan, who left the tradition and then went on to create his own very idiosyncratic spiritual worldview. And I found that just absolutely fascinating. And that book came to the attention of the Fetzer Memorial Trust, which is a part of the Fetzer Institute, that basically preserves and promotes the legacy of John Fetzer. And they asked me to do a similar kind of spiritual biography with John Fetzer. And of course, I jumped at the chance because this is precisely the thing I love to do. 
And it's fascinating. His life is fascinating. His thoughts are fascinating. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Brian Wilson about his new book, John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. To learn more about John E. Fetzer, please visit www.infinitepotential.com or fetzer.org. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about bridging two worlds, and that being science and spirituality. My guest is Brian Wilson. He is a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. He's also an author of a few books, but the one we're talking about today is John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. Brian, before the break, we were talking about John Fetzer's belief, the organizations of infinite potential and Fetzer.org. Let's talk a little bit about his personal practices mm -hmm. and, and the quest for higher consciousness. Within kind of the metaphysical worldview, he used just about everything that's out there. He was fascinated, as we've talked about a little bit, with various forms of divination. And one of the most interesting forms, of course, is the Ouija board. And he used the Ouija board for not only personal decisions, but also business decisions. But he also used it for a very special reason, and that's because he believed in reincarnation and he believed that he had lived multiple past lives. And he used the, the Ouija board as a means to basically flesh out his succession of past lives, going all the way back to the mythical island of Atlantis. And so this was part of his ongoing practice. He basically used the Ouija board throughout most of his life after he encountered it at Camp Chesterfield. Wow. The other thing that he was really into was meditation. And this really started with, he became very interested in new thought. 
And new thought is the American mind over matter, the power of positive thinking tradition that's so strong in this country. And so he got very interested in this practice of affirmations, basically what are in another context might be called mantras. And so he practiced that for a while, but then he decided after he started exploring Eastern traditions in detail that he should take up a real meditation tradition. And so he became, in the 1970s, a devotee of the Maharishi Yogi and started practicing transcendental meditation. And that became tremendously important, both for him and his wife. They practiced TM for years. And then finally, in his 80s, uh, was introduced to another uh, Indian tradition, South Asian tradition, called uh, Suryat Shab Yoga. And uh, it has an American form called MSIA, or Movement for Spiritual Inner Awareness. And he essentially practiced the meditation tradition. This is a meditation tradition that's based on mantras, literally up until the hour of his death. So for him, meditation was just extremely important. Wow. And, and talk a little bit about psychic consultants, because mm -hmm. this might surprise many. <laughs> Well, ever since he went down to Camp Chesterfield, the spiritualist camp in Indiana, he always sought out people he believed he could trust who had psychic abilities. Now, he was always very discerning in this, and he basically said that he'd encountered a lot of phonies out there, but there were certain people that he felt really truly did have psychic abilities. And so he relied on them for advice, again, in his businesses and in his personal life. And, for example, in the 1960s, uh, he was great friends with the psychic Gene Dixon, who was very important to him. And then in the 1970s, he encountered another psychic, King Killick, who was actually local here in Kalamazoo, who became his personal psychic for a time. And then uh, he encountered another psychic, a, a man named Jim Gordon, who Fetzer basically hired as kind of his house consultant, his house psychic, and continued consulting Jim Gordon for the rest of his life. And Jim Gordon was not only a psychic, but also a channeler. And Gordon claimed that he channeled higher beings, a number of these. And again, this Fetzer found this tremendously important, uh, both for his personal, but also for his professional life. Wow. I think this is surprising because we look at many successful business people and we don't think that they would dip into these realms only to learn mm -hmm. that they do. Yeah, it's probably more widespread than we think. For Fetzer, I think the important thing here is it it really gave him confidence to make the kind of bold decisions that he made. And I think that's part of the reason why it was so important for him to have these kinds of psychic tools, I guess, and psychic people that he could consult. And we we spoke a little bit about pendulums, which you said that he carried one with him all, at all times. Talk about dowsing, because that is another mm. area that people might not know about what dowsing is. There's a tradition out there that the earth is basically shot through with subtle energies and that these subtle energies can be measured. And in fact, this is the idea of ley lines that basically crisscross the earth. And the ley lines are actually indications of a variety of different things, including there are people called water dowsers or water witches who believe that by using the subtle energies that are uh, given off by pockets of underground water, 
that they can use a tool called a dowsing rod. And typically it's anything from a fork stick to I've even seen people use clothes hangers for this that they use to basically look at a property, look at a patch of ground, and they can feel vibrations from the earth energies that are given off by the water. So they can actually locate water. And there's a famous story with John Fetzer because he had a vacation home in Arizona, outside Tucson, Arizona, and he bought a beautiful uh, several acres of property. And when he went to build, uh, his builders basically said, well, you're out of luck because there's no water out there. And so he brought in a water dowser who identified a place where it was actually two people where they said there was a pocket of water at something like 200 feet down. And so John Fetzer brought in a well driller who thought he was crazy because he knew that there was no water there and drilled the 200 feet. And lo and behold, there was a gusher of water, which apparently has not failed to this day. So John Fetzer was a real believer in, in dowsing and water dowsing. It's interesting that you talk about dowsing. I'm in the process of building a house in mid-state New York, and the engineer, we were talking about where, where to get the water, and he said, well, we're just going to bring in the dowser. And my uh-huh. partner, he was like, what? <laughs> what? He goes, oh, yeah, that's how we do it here. And so we had this conversation about it, and it, it, in many places, it's commonplace. It is. It is. It's a folk practice that goes back centuries, but there are people today that, that swear by it. Yeah. You know, and I want to talk about John and his legacy and Mm -hmm. his vision to close the gap or broaden the horizons of the interrelationship between science and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As we were talking about earlier, he was really intrigued by the possibility that material energies or empirical energies shaded off into a continuum into subtle energies. And he really wanted to come up with ways of proving that connection. So he's very interested in the connection between science and spirituality. What's interesting is is he made a, a lot of money during his life, but I, I think he was never tremendously comfortable with the level of wealth he had. And he always believed that the money in itself wasn't important. It, it too, was simply an energy to do work in the world. And so he really felt there had to be a mission behind the money to make it meaningful spiritually. And so in the 1980s, he liquidated all his businesses and used the proceeds to basically create the endowment for a foundation, which is the Fetzer Institute. And and what does the Fetzer Institute do today? What kind Mm -hmm. of events or um, research is it conducting? Well, today it's really been interested in as its as its mission statement is to create the foundations for a loving world. So in the beginning, when Fetzer was still alive, the institute basically underwrote research in in parapsychology and energy medicine and all sorts of interesting cutting edge sciences. After he passed away, they shifted their focus to more kind of mainstream versions of holistic health. And that's always been a a priority for the the Fetzer Institute, looking at uh, a variety of ways of uh, improving the integration between holistic health and allopathy or or regular medicine. After September 11th, it was recognized that there there had to be a, a spiritual response to this. And one of John Fetzer's beliefs was that individual spiritual transformation was important, but it was only really significant 
if together it led to a global spiritual transformation. So part of the Fetzer Institute's mission has always been to foster individual spiritual transformation in the hopes that that would catalyze a global spiritual transformation. So what the Fetzer Institute is doing now is a variety of programs uh, designed to basically encourage the spiritual life across the life cycle from childhood to old age, both because it's important for our health and well-being, but it's also believed that there's a strong connection between this and the health of society and the health of the planet. Yeah. I was just going to add, you know, in keeping really with Gandhi's ideals and uh, Ahimsa, you know, the practice of nonviolence. Exactly right. Exactly right. And even though Fetzer never actually quoted Gandhi, I think they were working on the same wavelength. There's this idea that in order for there to be peace and happiness in the world, uh, people really need to basically rediscover the spiritual foundations of things. And that, again, is one of the things that, that John Fetzer really wanted to do, in, especially in his foundation. Wow. This fascinating work. A fascinating read. The book, once again, is John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age by Brian C. Wilson, my guest today. Professor Wilson, thank you for joining us on the show. I want to give contact information to learn more about the work of John E. Fetzer and the Fetzer Institute. Please visit www.fetzer.org or www.infinitepotential.com. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Amit Goswami and Dr. Brian C. Wilson, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.